So as I said, my name is Rod, pronouns he and him. Um, welcome this morning. As I also said, we are starting a series on the prophets this morning, um, which may be a big trigger for some of us. So I'll start, I'll start with a prayer. Loving God, be with us as we um, look at a little bit of the Hebrew Scriptures, look at the prophets, and as we carefully and gently explore how there might be life in them for us at this time and in this place, help us to be kind to ourselves as we explore this, if this is a, a challenging topic, uh, help us to be kind to each other and listen carefully to each other as people share their thoughts, their fears, um, their hopes, and yeah, just be with us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, yeah, so when you hear that we're going to look at the prophets, uh, any initial fears, <laughs> kind of flashbacks, um, thoughts, you go, oh, I hope it's not going to be this, or I hope it's going to be that, or... Sorry, it's a bit early just to throw to you. Normally you need a few minutes to warm up. Uh, you don't even need to say anything, but nice just to sit for a minute to think. When, yeah, when I hear that we're going to be looking at the Hebrew prophets, what comes up for me that might mean that I don't want to come next week? <sighs> yep, Amy has a thing, and then I'll come back to you, Yanni. I have a thing. Um, something I remember from back when I used to read the Bible regularly was um, there's like a huge social justice kind of stream through the prophets that I really appreciated. Um, and I found that to be like a little oasis in a lot of the stuff I was hearing about from, you know, church sources. Was, so I liked that about the prophets. Well, my initial reaction was, oh, mean and punitive. I can't have read the same bits you read. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's just perfect, perfect <laughs> kind of bookend uh, to this morning and to the series that there are some incredible riches in the prophets and there are some very troubling things in the prophets and we're going to hold both those things as we look at them and uh, recognise those troubling things and search for the treasures that might uh, inspire us and help us to flourish. Um, so, I'm not going to let anyone else speak. Thank you. Uh, so, this morning I just want to give a very brief introduction to who they were, the prophets. So, big apologies. It's going to be a bit of a facty morning, but it's not going to be a facty series, yeah? So this morning, we'll, we're just going to give a bit of introduction, a bit of context that might help us as we move forward, um, but I'm hoping that most of the series will be yeah, much more emotional and embodied and engaging with yeah, perhaps contemporary figures that we consider to have a prophetic voice with the, with the ultimate goal of trying to awaken our inner prophet yeah, we talk a lot in our community about the fact that we have multiple selves inside us, 
Uh, and so we don't necessarily want uh, in a profit to drive the bus of ourself, um, but it's a useful person to have inside you speaking into situations that you face. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's where we're headed, just to think, who, who are the prophets in our time? What are the riches of the Hebrew prophets? Who are the prophets in our time? And how might we have a little minor prophet inside of us that can speak into certain situations in a powerful way um, without that inner prophet driving the bus? And really, as, as was clear with what Yanni said, we're not going to be affirming everything about the worldview of the ancient Hebrew prophets, or the gender politics, for that matter. Um, our belief in this community is that a healthy conversation with Scripture is one where some things are rejected and others are affirmed. And just like the Jewish people who've been handling these texts lots, a lot longer than Christians, there's, there's never pressure to, to take everything on, um, but an encouragement to engage and argue with the text, believing that God is behind them, but not necessarily in a way that is immediately discernible. Um, there's that... I know I always say this, but there's that great story about if you have 15 rabbis talking about a particular passage in the Hebrew Scriptures, then you'll get 16 opinions. Uh, so if they're comfortable with that level of argumentation and difference and rejecting and affirming different things, then we should be as well as the inheritors of their tradition. Um, so just going to start with another question for you, and that is, when I say someone is a prophet, what are the things that come to mind? They might be, uh, yeah, just in our society these days, if someone says, oh, that person's a prophet, um, or that person has prophetic abilities or whatever, what is it that that might infer, or what might they be suggesting by that? Yeah? So I'm not asking you to put on your... Bible hat necessarily, but just you're, you're a member of general society hat and say to the people at your table, maybe groups of three, you might want to join a table if, you, if someone's sitting on their own. Uh, yeah. What do people mean when they say that someone is a prophet? Do you think there could be a range? All right. I'll give you a couple of minutes. Um, so any, anything that came up in your table that you wanted to share about how our society might think of a prophet. Doesn't have to be serious. Um, yeah, a, a, um, almost a helicopter commentary on what is going on, uh, combined with prescience, wisdom, and uh, looking forward as to... Um, this is this is the truth, or this is the way. Thanks, Dean. Any others? We're just sort of talking about how they're like often a jarring truth teller, so they're not comfortable. There's something very jarring about, it, and they never fully kind of are what you want them to be. Like they'll always sort of live outside the expectation of comfort in whatever way that looks like. 
chapter, we talked about themes of there's um, perhaps some ability to see into a situation and um, predicting the future or telling the future. Um, I think in ancient times, in my opinion anyway, there's a bit more of, you know, perhaps God is behind this. Um, I've got a lot more scepticism <laughs> um, about people that call themselves prophets these days and not quite sure of motives perhaps behind that. Um, yeah, so that's... Yeah, that's a, that's a really... We won't necessarily talk much about that today, but that's a really important thing to come back to. I didn't, it's funny, you prepare talks out of your own experience, and I didn't come from a church where people claimed to have prophetic gifts. And so that trauma, though I have had lots of friends that had a prophecy over them which sowed kind of death and destruction into their lives. Um, and so that, yeah, that background and that trauma is not mine, and so I didn't think of it but it is many people's here. So, yeah, we will come back to that. Thanks for reminding us of that, Ros. Yeah, I just, yeah, I always love the fact that we get voices from the floor here because it just reminds me of all of the blind spots that I have and the things that I haven't, that haven't occurred to me. Um, so, with the Hebrew prophets, there are, uh, you know, we're not here to say any of those things are right or wrong, but that what we see in the Hebrew prophets will be, will reflect some of those things and perhaps not others of those things. So, we're just going to do a really quick um, jump through, it's, it's going to be real PowerPoint land, things are going to be numbered, mm, so apologies for that. Um, see? <laughs> so, we're just going to quickly look at the prophetic pattern and hopefully we can then come back to, to this as we think about people that might be modern day prophets and which of these things are part of their experience, which might not be, what might be in the place of these elements. Um, so, with the Hebrew prophets, generally their, their ministry, their prophetic ministry starts with some kind of radical encounter with God. The real kind of archetypal vision of that is from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, you can have a little look at it, you can look it up at home if you're listening to the podcast, it's the beginning of Isaiah 6. But Isaiah basically goes into the temple and has this super kind of cosmic, psychedelic encounter with this kingly manifestation of God and these angels that take coals from the... Um, from the altar and press them against his lips, so it's not really necessarily big on the OH&S. Um, but it finishes with um, this kind of radical encounter, this transformational encounter of, wow, you are big and I am small. <laughs> and then at the end of this passage, we see step two in the prophetic pat pattern, which is Yahweh saying, who can I send to talk to my people? And Isaiah said, pick me. Yeah, so this is step two of the pattern. They then represent God to God's people as a response to this encounter. Uh, and you can understand that the kind of psychological logic of this, you, you have a people that are acting as if they've kind of forgotten God, they're acting as if God doesn't exist, or they're following other gods, and then this prophet has this encounter with, with God and goes, wow, why have we forgotten this really great God? Um, the other thing that's important to remember is that they are talking about Israel's history, that's what they refer to, and what they almost always go back to 
is the, the birth place of Israel. Mount Sinai, the people of Israel have been freed from captivity in Egypt. And at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel and gives them some guidelines for how they need to live if they're going to be in this covenant. But before God does that, God makes promises to them and says, I'm going to make you a priestly nation. So your job is to represent me to the nations around you, to represent who I am, a God of love and generosity. So when the prophets speak, they're constantly referring to this this covenant, this relationship which Israel has forgotten. Um, And this sense of fidelity to God which they have betrayed, perhaps by going to worship other gods. Point four is what Amy was referring to, that there, as part of this, because of the nature of that covenant, as part of this, there's a confrontation of the king and the priests and the other leaders with the ways that they have led Israel astray, um, and, but particularly with the ways they have not represented God well. And that manifests mainly in the way they treat the most vulnerable. So there's a lot in the prophets, particularly some prophets, that focuses on those kind of social justice issues. You've, you're trampling the poor, you've forgotten the widow and the orphan, uh, you are abusing the stranger in your midst, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, w- w- it's, it's important to, to understand that social justice strand in the context of that general covenant strand. I told you there'd be numbers. I think they're going to be letters soon too. Yay, there we go. Uh, some of them are bold and some of them are not. <laughs> Formatting issues, never mind. Um, so there's a kind of a pattern with the prophets and some of them represent all of these, some of them just repre- represent some, um, but these are features that you'll find in the prophets. They understandably given their mission, they accuse Israel of breaking the conditions of the covenant, following other gods, accuse them of lack of justice towards the poor, they call on them to repent, so it's Yom Kippur, perfect time to talk about repentance, it just means turn around, yeah. Metanoia, which is the Greek word for this, it literally just means turn around, so they've wandered from the path of following Yahweh and the prophets call on them to turn around and come back to that path. Um, there are also consequences, and this, this is, to Yanni's point, this is where the prophets get pretty disturbing when they talk about the consequences of not repenting. It also speaks to their worldview, where they see God as the agent of everything, and so the consequences for not turning around are not the kind of natural consequences of doing things, but are ordained by God. God is the one that's going to punish them if they don't turn around. Uh, and so that model of God's action and then the, the details of that punishment are often the elements of the prophets that we might find most disturbing. Um, but through it all, and often at the end of the prophetic books, there is this promise that God will remain faithful to the covenant that God has made with Israel, and that God's ultimate aim is to restore 
Israel. It might only be a tiny remnant that are left after all the punishments that are restored, but that that's, that's God's aim to restore Israel. Um, and in the weekly note that I sent out, I included this passage, which is actually not from the prophets. <laughs> it's from the Torah, from Deuteronomy. But it, it really encapsulates the, the pattern of the prophets. Um, so just have a break from my voice. Is there someone who would like to just read this for us and for the benefit of those listening to the podcast? This is Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. When you have had children and your children have had children and they have grown old on the land. If you then corrupt yourselves by carving idols, and so do evil in the eyes of Yahweh, your God, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses this day that you will vanish from the land which you are to occupy across the Jordan. You will not enjoy a long life. You will be swept away. God will scatter you across the nations. Only a few of you will remain in the nations where Yahweh will have driven you. There you will serve gods made of wood or stone, made by human hands, gods who cannot see or hear, cannot eat or smell. But when you seek Yahweh from those lands, you will find God where you are, if you search with all your heart and soul. When you are filled with sorrow for all these things that will happen to you, you will turn back to Yahweh and listen obediently. Yahweh God is a merciful God, one who will not fail you or destroy you, one who will never forget the covenant that was made with your ancestors and sealed with a divine oath. Thanks, Tracy. So I just want to pause here um, to see if there are any comments or questions or thoughts about that. This passage about the prophetic pattern that we just went through, any things that, that really struck you or stood out for you. While you're thinking, just a, a tiny bit of interesting context for Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is, a long, is written as a long sermon by Moses as Israel is preparing to enter into the promised land of Canaan, the other side of the Jordan. But when that text was actually formulated in its final form, it would have been done probably by rabbis in Babylon after, during the time of the exile. And so you can see this kind of beautiful but also very anguished reflection on the trajectory of Israel. Israel is destroyed, Judah is in, in exile in Babylon, and these Jewish leaders, as they put this text together, just reflecting on everything that has happened and giving it this kind of divine lens. And for us, seeing God as the agent of all this stuff might seem horrible, but for them it's actually hopeful, because all the bad things have already happened. <laughs> and what they're clinging to is the hope that if God is the agent of their destruction, God can and has the power to be the agent of their restoration to the land. But any, any thoughts, reflections, questions, things that you notice about this passage? Uh, yeah, when I first, um, my, my initial reaction was this is totally 
um, the opposite to what we are being taught today in terms of unconditional love. And then I'm thinking, well, no, it's not really, it's not saying God doesn't love you because he's ready for you to come back. He's always waiting for you, but there are some things that you need to do and not do in order for God to, uh, if you like, approve of you or to accept you. So I'm struggling with that a little bit, but I can see beyond my initial sort of knee-jerk reaction was, oh, there you are, God saying, uh, I'm only going to love you if you do this, this and this. And then I'm just critiquing that. So there you go, in the space of three seconds, <laughs> critique my own critique. Beautiful. Thanks, Yanni. It actually occurs to me, one way of looking at that might be that uh, we see here the consequences of their own actions and that God is saying, look, I'm there in the background and I will be waiting and when you're ready to come back to me, I'll welcome you with open arms. Just a... Another way of looking at the same thing if we take this idea of unconditional love. Yeah. And uh, the beautiful thing about the Hebrew Scriptures is all of these debates happen within the Scriptures themselves. So you've got this um, deuteronomic view of God where there's cause and effect, actions and consequences, and then you've got books like Job that say, hmm, that doesn't seem to work in practice. And this is all within... Hebrew scripture, these kinds of, this kind of wrestling, which is wonderfully permission-giving for us to have those same kinds of debates and questions and go, how, how does it actually work in practice? What is the logic of the way God acts? Anything else before we... It's not very deep, but I just love how in this story, Yahweh can eat. You know, like, <laughs> their, their gods can't eat, but I'm a god that can eat. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> totally. Yep. Thanks, Rod. Um, it's, it's building on what you just said earlier, but I, I think inherent in this is um, the model that I think is still subliminal or, or overt in many churches of if you are faithful and do the right thing, all the benefits will flow to you, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, as you just said before, well, other other books wrestle with that and say, well, no, actually, but this is has built into that, that if you, look, you all these bad things have happened because you haven't been faithful. If you are faithful, you will get the rewards. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we are a church of full of people that have, come from a culture where they were told, do this and this is, will be the, the result, and it didn't work out. And so then they're going, okay, so how do I hold on to any sense of faith or any sense of the faithfulness of God, the other side of that experience of that logic not really working out for me? Yeah, so that's a, a very important reminder, Dean. Thank you. I think there's an interesting inevitability to it. I think I may have earlier read it as very much, you know, if this, then that, and so avoid the bad. But there's a bit of an inevitability in that they're talking about the future and if you do this, but then when you do that, as an expectation that of course you will, of course the cycle is that we'll always do, you know, stray from the path and then maybe come back. And then also given that it's being written 
down the track kind of as a reflection back on the past. It feels much more... Um, I find the inevitability almost comforting because it takes the pressure off this, um, this misstep that you may make and the consequences of that. Thanks, Stu. Oh. Alan, breaking the fourth wall from the sound desk. Um, I, I really struggle with these sort of passages just because it just really strikes me as a lot of the whole victim blaming look what you made me do type thing and you know if there's sort of i can only see two ways of looking at it and both of them are equally bad in many ways like either you know the yeah the look what you made me do you know you have to be perfect to you know get the good outcomes or the other one is you know if bad things happen it's that's just you know consequences of your own actions but if good things happen it's god and it's just like well both of those just you know just you know scream like abusive relationship to me Beautiful segue, thanks, Alan. Because, um, and if you haven't see, seen, look what you made me do. You should. It's an incredibly powerful documentary. Um, but yeah, that that's that's where I want to finish this morning with us wrestling with what metaphor of the relationship of God to God's people we read this through, and which ones might be very dangerous, and which ones might be more life-giving. So thanks, Alan. I affirm your breaking of the fourth wall. Though I did notice Alan just turned himself up a tiny bit as he took the microphone. I'm not not sure why, but anyway. Um, okay, so we are gonna I'm just gonna put a pin in what Alan said just for a second and run through um, just a couple of little bits and pieces about the prophets that might be helpful or might um, inform our conversation as we go ahead. Um, again. More numbers. Um, yeah, so just some of the prophets were amazing speakers, but others were more like um, performance poets, lying on the ground, walking around naked, that kind of thing. So in terms of thinking about contemporary equivalents of the prophets, it's interesting to think about um, the range of different people that might represent a prophetic voice. And we're not necessarily just talking about um, Martin Luther King Jr. style public speakers. Um, most were ignored. At the time, some were killed, so they represented a minority report, a kind of resistance literature. They were always on the edges. Um, though later prophets read their writings and kept that resistance literature alive. And it is, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a beautiful thing to reflect on in terms of the history of the church as well, to think about the church as this for much of its history, a very big institution that had a, a small, marginal, prophetic, resistant voice all the way through, keeping things alive that um, the church was busily burying um, through its relationship with empire. Um, yeah, there's some major prophets that get their own scroll in the synagogue, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then there are the minor prophets. There are 12 of them that are all collected onto one scroll. Um, so when, when you see a lot of these divisions in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but if you, if you think about scrolls, <laughs> then um, it does make sense. Uh, and we will prob probably, just because of the community that we are, we'll choose a minor prophet uh, and as our kind of case study for this, maybe one that focuses on social justice. Um, and, yeah, because 
the final form of all these prophetic books was sort of in Babylon. They're sort of shaped into a story, uh, and we will, again, try to discern that story through one representative prophet. Um, the, the Bible Project, we don't necessarily affirm everything that they do and say, but they are a great resource for kind of biblical literacy, and I'll post a little video of theirs about the prophets this week that I've basically stolen all this stuff from. Um, so, just to finish then, um, getting back to what um, Alan was saying, it's very important for us to be conscious of the, the dominant metaphor that we use to understand the relationship of God to God's people through the prophets, and one that is really dominant, because it is really dominant within the prophets, especially books like Hosea and Jeremiah. One metaphor is the image of God as husband and Israel or Judah as a unfaithful, an unfaithful wife. And God warns them that they need to return, and if they don't, they will be punished. And when you look at, especially over the last few years, the reporting in the media, especially in the ABC, on the prevalence of domestic violence within the church, you realise that these metaphors can have extremely dangerous consequences. And that, as Alan said, that look what you made me do, God, is a very, very dangerous God. It's a very dangerous metaphor and how it has manifested throughout the history of the church, but even today in extremely unhealthy relationships, gender relationships, is, is something that we need to name at the beginning of this series and we need to keep naming through the series because for many of us, A, it's likely to be the biggest block to us finding anything of worth in the prophets, but B, it, it may be part of your own story of being marginalised or even experiencing, you know, forms of abuse as a result of churches that had this as their dominant metaphor for the way that God relates to the church and therefore the way men might relate to women. Um, so that, that's, that just needs to be named. And what I hope is that through this series we can mine the prophets for other metaphors that might be more life-giving. Um, so, one of them is God as mother that we see in, uh, particularly in Isaiah, sort of in Hosea as well a little bit, but mainly in Isaiah, Isaiah this idea of God as a mother that comforts her child. God as mother and Israel and Judah as a child and this metaphor of, of God nursing Israel and Judah, bringing them to life, watching them grow and then seeing them run away from them. And I, I thought a, an image that might be helpful and life-giving for us as we go forward in this series is just that idea of um, God as, as a spurned mother, almost like the victim 
of domestic violence rather than the perpetrator, um, someone who does not have access to her children anymore because of that, and who sends a friend, the prophet, to her partner to say, please, at very least, take care of our children. And this, to me, is the kind of prophet that Sinead O'Connor is. This is her prophetic voice, the voice of a mother. She became a mother at about 20, 21. And uh, we're going to finish this morning with a, a song of hers from 1990 called Black Boys on Mopeds, which was written... Uh, this is just after the massacre in the Tiananmen Square where all the students were killed by Chinese tanks. And Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister of England at the time, came out to condemn that violence. And Sinead O'Connor writes about the hypocrisy of that condemnation given that uh, at that time there were a lot of black, young black men who were dying at the hands of British police, being brutalised by the British police. And so she calls out that hypocrisy. But she, all, but she, she does it, and you'll see in the second verse, she does it with the voice of a mother saying, I don't want this for my son. I don't want this to be the world that my son grows up in. Anyway, enough context. Let's just uh, listen to the song. Can we have the next slide, Alan? Because I can't get this to work. There we go. Margaret Thatcher on TV Shocked by the deaths that took place in Beijing It seems strange that she should be offended The same orders are given by her I've said this before now You said I was childish and you'll say it now Remember what I told you They hated me, they will hate you England's not the Looking for food for her 
Thanks, Alan. Um, so I'd also highly recommend watching the Sinead O'Connor documentary. I think it's on SBS. And she didn't just sing prophetic songs, but she lived a prophetic life. And like most of the Hebrew prophets, she suffered for it. Um, it's quite incredible looking at these lyrics and, and thinking about what happened to her in terms of her career basically being destroyed because she stood up for against institutional abuse in the Catholic Church and um, she got, yeah, her career was killed. And it is um, a, a tragic but appropriate segue to communion um, because in communion there's so many things that we could remember but one thing that we can remember as we celebrate and commemorate Jesus' death for us is that this is what happens to prophets because they say incredibly uncomfortable things to power. They speak truth to power and um, so many of the Hebrew prophets end up dead or in prison um, and, yeah, that is, that's the challenge of being a prophetic voice. So, as always, you're welcome to participate or not participate. You're welcome to... We'll come forward and people grab a thing of juice and a little piece of cracker. We form a, a loose circle and then we'll pray together. If you want to just join the circle but don't want to participate in communion, that is also fine. Um, but, yeah, when you are ready, come forward, take a bit of cracker and a thing of juice. And when we're all in a circle, I will pray for us. So this is a just a, a prayer that I wrote this morning this week um, to finish this morning. Uh, so I might just pray it and then we can eat and drink. Loving God, help us to find our prophetic self, our fierce mother self, and help us to find a place for her amongst our other selves. May we listen when she cries out for her children, when she cries out for justice. May we listen to her anger and her sorrow when she calls us to remember. Remember who we are and remember who you are. Loving God. Amen. Let's eat and drink.